Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter with Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. We've got part two, part two of my discussion with Mariah Borges, and we're talking about deer population monitoring. This is, you know, a really important topic for a lot of landowners, uh, statewide, etc. You know, and, and Mariah, you know, he's really got a, a, an, an idea to how to handle this and, and implement and, and make real management decisions. And, and I'm really happy that, you know, we have him uh, as a contributor to this podcast. So, Mariah, are you, you on the call? I'm here, ready to talk deer. All right, let's talk. So previously we talked about a, a bunch of different things. We talked about carrying capacity, you know, deer populations, dependencies, those things that are really important on the landscape. And and today we're going to get into kind of a, a more hands-on topic, you know, talking specifically about indices that you use as a deer biologist and and things that we can glean from from a management side, monitoring you know the health and status of the deer that we're, we're killing, and so there's there's more you know details to think about when you're managing a landscape and then specifically managing a deer herd. So why don't you kick it off and and get into maybe some of the basics and and then we'll we'll kind of run the train of of you know what's important the considerations that we have to make as landowners. All right, yeah. So this. Part two is a follow-up to last week. Of course, last week we discussed the concept of carrying capacity and and how deer population quality changes at or above carrying capacity. And so today we're going to apply that to a property. And so basically giving listeners the tools uh, to make harvest decisions based on quality of their, their deer population and the size of it, essentially. Um, but before we go any further, I just want to first describe this term that we're going to use as population index um, or, or population indices. And the reason that we use indices instead of just a count of the number of deer. You know, last week we discussed, of course, that there there is this carrying capacity. There's some finite number that we'll never really know for sure because it does change. Some finite number that the habitat can 
can support. And there is some finite number of deer out there, but we don't need to know both of those numbers to make wise management decisions. But we can use these indices that we will discuss here shortly to assess the relationship between the deer population and the carrying capacity. In other words, we can use these indices from year to year to monitor how populations are changing. Let me ask you a question real quick. So from the population dynamics standpoint, and maybe we need to describe this maybe to the listenership is, you know, deer come and go, deer live and die. And it's hard to monitor that across your landscape. It's hard to have, you know, that in a a square mile scale, let alone even an individual property. And obviously home range is very, you know, individually by deer. There's not enough data that you can potentially take over time just from like monitoring. One, one of the topics that I had talked to you about previously is, you know, a lot of people use drones and thermal imagery and to the point of, you know, winter areas, summer areas, fall areas, all those things are constantly in flux. And if you take some data, you know, even in, a, in an, again, in, in a drone simulation where you're getting aerial, you know, imagery and information, that's a point in time. That's not necessarily an indicator of exactly where you're at population-wise, so to speak. So I'm really interested to hear more about this topic. Yeah, and so you brought up a point there, immigration and emigration. Uh, and we're not going to discuss those really at any length today, but I just want to describe why. Immigration is, of course, the term to describe animals leaving their home range to set up shop somewhere else. Um, this can be, of course, yearling or uh, yearling buck or yearling doe dispersal. Um, and immigration is essentially the opposite. It's those animals coming to your area from elsewhere to set up shop and live the rest of their lives. Uh, we're just going to assume for our discussions today that those two essentially cancel each other out. And for the most part, they do, unless you're in a really uh, unique situation where you have really poor habitat quality or, or some other some other external factor that, that could be altering that ratio but we'll just assume that today that those two are are true but you brought up another point there and and that is that things are constantly in flux and and yes that is the case deer populations are always changing and from year to year the environmental factors that could increase um, mortality of deer change Um, the 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 quality of food available to deer changes if you're in the appalachians for instance a mast year um, can be, of course, a, a very high food fall. And then the next year, if you have a mass failure, there could be very little food available. Um, so there's all kinds of these external factors. So we don't want to get too bogged down into them because if you throw too many factors into your decision-making and you don't have enough real data entering the t- decision-making, you know, really clouds your judgment and there's, and there's it's, it's really tough to um, strategically, you know, approach this question of how many deer do I take? So my suggestion for folks is evaluate your population at the same time every year and make your decisions based on several different indices that you evaluate at that same time. So you don't want to just use one, one population index because that, that could be flawed because of, again, some kind of external factor. You mentioned, um, you know, someone who has a drone and a thermal camera that could be used to count deer, maybe yarding in winter. And and that could be one of many different population indices that you use to monitor a population. But for instance, if we use that one 
and that one only. If we had, say, a certain year where some external factors in the neighborhood changed the availability of, of row crop foods um, and some farmers changed their rotation, long story short, there just wasn't as much winter food available to deer. It could change what we see in our winter deer yards because deer may be more concentrated there um, because of uh, food sources elsewhere failing. That's just a, a hypothetical example for saying why it's important to have several different indices. The more indices that are trending the same direction, like a population increase or a population decrease, the more that agree with each other, the more confidence we can have in, in making our harvest decisions to adjust for that. Let me ask you a quick question, Mariah, because I think, you know, you, you, you brought up a point. You talked about the winter month example. Does it make sense uh, a part of this process to look at, you know, your deer population is simply the highest probably right around now. And then obviously over time, things kind of decrease. So with, with, you know, this fawn recruitment or fawn birth happening now, your, your populations are kind of skyrocketing. And, you know, as, as time goes on, depending on stress and predation and all the things that go on in hunting season, you know, they start to somewhat degrade. And I guess the question I have is, should you be monitoring, and, and we haven't got into the process of monitoring multiple times during the year, should you be looking at in this case, you know, uh, information related to the summer months or the fall months or the winter months, and just just comparing that data on an annual basis, would that be kind of a start rather than just, you know, one period of time? If you're, if you're just monitoring via trail cam or something like that, because that's how most people tend to do those those type of things. Any thoughts there? Well, uh, well, first off, I'm, I'm not talking about using trail cameras year round. Um, definitely would encourage someone to do that if, if they have interest in, you know, watching deer year round. But for the purposes of, of evaluating your deer population and making harvest decisions, you should really be completing all, most at least, uh, of these population. So, you know, population evaluations, like counting the number of deer, through a trail camera survey, for instance, estimating the number of deer. You would do that before hunting season. There's no value in doing that now, or, or there's little value in doing it now compared to in September, because in September we can estimate, for instance, fawn recruitment. Right now, we can't estimate fawn recruitment. We're right in the middle of fawning. A lot of those fawns are going to die before we get to hunting season. So the best snapshot of the population for making harvest decisions is actually pre-hunting season um, because that represents the population that we can harvest from. Uh, you know, making measurements like that all throughout the year can just kind of cloudy the water. So I, I would I would suggest people focus on one di just discrete time of the year when they do their population evaluations. That's great information because I think some people are confused on you know, when to start monitoring things. And again, to your point earlier, things change a lot throughout the year. When you do your monitoring, if you were to monitor populations specifically, would you do it just before hunting season? And in this case, we hunt, you know, most people's seasons start in September, October. You would do it just before hunting season, so to speak. And then is there any trend to continue to monitor that during hunting season? And does that make maybe a, a viable change potentially as more deer potentially immigrate onto your property as you, maybe you've created this metropolis, this great hunting environment. Is, is there another maybe step in, in that as well? 
No, it, it, you know, in most instances, unless there's some kind of a, a, a really crazy event that happens, I wouldn't suggest changing your harvest decisions throughout the season. Uh, you, you want to make a decision be, before hunting season starts based on all of the data you've collected and your assessment of what's happening with the deer population and then stick to that and then evaluate again in a year. We have to be really careful when we're making these decisions to try to, to, to not be biased by anecdotal observations. So for instance, if, if we decided that for this, this year, for whatever reason, we're backing off doe harvest, you know, on this property, we're only gonna take a couple of does and, and let's say one buck. If we go and, and we hunt one evening and we just see a bunch of deer that evening, a bunch more than we're used to, and we and we say, oh, well, we're, we're, we're going to change our decision and start shooting deer. We're basing that decision off of one evening's observation, whereas the decision prior to season should have been based off of months of observation and some kind of well-designed preseason population assessment. But to, to get into when to do, when to make that harvest management decision, of course, again, before the, right before the beginning of hunting season, that's the best time because that's when you'll have the most data. But the, the, the data you're going to make that decision based off of is somewhat gathered the hunting season prior. It's gathered while you're out in the woods and in, in, in working on your property. And then it's gathered if you do some kind of a preseason population survey. Okay, so, so what do I mean? We're, we're going to break down what population indices to use based on the easy ones that anyone can apply on pretty much any size property and the ones that require more data, more deer, and generally just a larger property, we'll break those down secondly. So the ones that just about anyone can do, browse surveys or food plot exclusion cages. Uh, you mentioned this in the last podcast. This, this indice is, it's not a hard, fast science. Rather, if you are in tune with what deer naturally eat on a landscape, you can identify plants, you spend a lot of time on your property, you should be able to have a, a pretty general feeling for whether or not that population um, is stressing the plant community, as in you know, eating a lot of the growing plants there and, and, and um, you know, maybe overly browsing some species or whether that's not happening. Okay, these these population indices that I'm going to throw out here for small properties are, are a little bit more loosey goosey because they depend on you having intimate knowledge of deer and making comparisons between what's happening in front of you and what you've seen happen in the past. So we just touched on looking at observing browse on natural forages in, in the in the woods. If you see deer hammering a species that they don't normally consume very much of, that can be a clue that your deer population is extremely high. Uh, if you see them eating a lot of, let's say, pokeberry or common ragweed, well, that, that may not be so much an indicator of a high deer population. It may just be an indicator that, that those plants are limited. Um, they're, they're pretty nat naturally hot or they're naturally pretty highly selected deer forages. It may be that you just need to, to promote more disturbance on your property. But there's no hard and fast rule here like, you know, go out and observe 10, 10 stems browsed of this species and you know you have too many deer. There's no general rule like that. 
simply because deer diets and selectivity do vary quite widely across the landscape. So you kind of have to have a feeling for your deer population. Um, but always keep your eyes out for warning signs. If you see evidence that deer are significantly, significantly setting back tree regeneration, um, that would be a clue that you have too many deer for that forest. Okay, they are harming tree regeneration. Therefore, they, they are you know, hindering the, the future plant community. If there's evidence of, of distinct browse lines in the understory, that is a big red flag that you probably have too many deer. You need to shoot some deer and you need to create some disturbance to get sunlight back on the ground and, and repair what the deer have done. If, and this is, some, is somewhat limited, but sometimes I've noticed when you have high deer densities and you have evidence of browse lines and, and some of these other clues, you also see large monocultures of some species and they're generally very poor forage species. They're species that deer don't eat um, in, in general and they, they kind of take over, you know, maybe it's an open field and an upland field, early plant, early successional plant community. And it's just getting taken over by a native, but non-desirable forage simply because deer are, are picking through there and consuming all of the other types of forbs uh, and, and just suppressing them so hard that they can't, they can't grow. And then the other last big red flag is that if you're, if you see an abnormally high number of deer, and again, this is, is something you kind of have to have a feel for. If you're seeing a ton of deer on your property, and it seems like everywhere you go, there's just deer. Sometimes that can be a red flag as well. Um, it, it, and I, I mention all of these because they really do take experience to know what is too much and what is enough. And so you, you, yeah, it takes an intimate understanding of, of deer in your area and what high deer density looks like on, on, on the plant community there. Yeah, I think it's funny. I live in, in kind of a neighborhood setting. Everyone has uh, five to 10 acres and the houses are kind of stacked up. And, and uh, usually the, the yarding uh, in the wintertime, you'll get deer uh, sticking around our areas and, and they browse, uh, you know, a lot of the plants in, in the neighborhood pretty, pretty heavy, right? There's good available food source and, and they're reliant on those at certain times. And, and, you know, as the deer start to yard up in winter, you know, they, they become very resident. And one of the things that has always kind of baffled me a little bit is, you know, when you have these areas that you've created a lot of disturbance in like earlier and, and you get a major influx and, and nobody around you is ma monitoring or managing their properties, that that's, that's a bit destructive. And, uh, you know, it's somewhat, if it's consistent to, to your point earlier, if it's consistent, you know, you can, you can take note of that and recognize that deer are going to use your property at certain times a year more frequently because of the food availability. The, the question is, you know, how do you sustain a population like that? And, and back to the points earlier that we made in the, in the first podcast, you know, I, I think that's the one thing that has, has continued to, to bother me um, in, in the areas that I'm working with. And, and again, pushing those deer populations, you know, as low as possible and, and balancing the hunting opportunities but I, I definitely struggle with trying to say, okay, well, seasonally, you know, they may be eating this plant and they're not eating that plant. And then wintering 
time comes and they're they're quite destructive and it's kind of all these various bits of data that you're kind of collecting and say well this is kind of the normalcy in their in the routines um that doesn't mean that you're going to have you know 15 or 20 deer on your property on a consistent basis during hunting season per se it just so happens that they they want a yard and area because maybe you have a little more uh, evergreen cover and as a result of that you know they're, they're able to thermoregulate better on the on the landscape so you know, just just another little consideration because some of these things are seasonal and and that you know and and that matters. So I don't know, Mariah. Just just a thought I had when you're talking about the uh, the plant life and you know the available food and, and whether digesting certain things. The other thing I see is the takeover of bush honeysuckle across the landscape that that I pretty much work in, and uh, that's a that's a complete factor of their you know it's a, it's a lower deer preference item. You know they're consuming a lot of the other plants, and then you get this this flush understory of bush honeysuckle that you have to eliminate on the landscape in order to promote those those plants that are, are edible and, and available for deer. You know that's that's the the struggle with having invasive plants in the landscape. And the the deer yarding comment there that alludes back to the concept of the lowest hole in the bucket. If winter food, winter for or winter browse rather, is limited is the most limited resource for your deer population, that should be the vegetation that you pay the most, most attention to when you're evaluating, you know, whether or not you need to make a deer population adjustment. So in, in your, in your example there, I wouldn't be super concerned about summer forages as long as they're, um, as long as there's enough on the landscape. It sounds like from what you said, I would be most concerned about winter browse i would be going into those yarding areas um at the end of winter and i would be evaluating is is available browse declining over time for you know for those deer and then also are those tree species actually able to successfully regenerate there if they're not you have too many deer and 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 you would need to decrease the deer population a little bit um Okay, so that, that kind of knocks out the first two, what you know, what I would say are a little bit more loosey-goosey, uh, kind of relying on, on your general feeling of, of what's happening there. Now we'll get to the, the two types of numbers that you can collect as even a small property owner um, to evaluate or, or to monitor whether or not that population is trending upward or downward over time. First one is hunter observation surveys. And really, regardless of the property size, you can collect this type of information. So asking everyone who hunts on your property, um, you know, of course, including yourself, monitor, or write down every single time you go hunting, make a note of where you hunted, whether it was morning, evening, how many hours, how many adult does you saw, how many um, adult bucks, how many fawns, and keep track of that data over time and calculate that as number of deer observed per an hour. And that can be one of your indices to see if that number is trending upward over time or trending downward. Now, I do want to say you have to be a little bit careful with that, especially on a small property with only a couple of stand locations, because the stand locations can very easily um, either have a lot of deer around them or have very little deer around them, depending on seasonal shifts and food sources. So you have to be a little bit careful with that one, but that can be one of your indices. The other one that you can implement on a small property is a trail camera survey. 
um, a, a preseason trail camera survey. And, and of course, rule of thumb here is do one every 100 acres. If your property is smaller than 100 acres, you just do one trail camera um, for your survey. You gather this data before hunting season, um, realize that sometimes bucks dominate these surveys, can dominate a, a, a bait site, you know, and, and, and make it seem like you have a higher buck to doe ratio or even fewer does than you do. So the point is there can be some error in a trail camera survey, but it, it is another indice to add to your list of, or, or your pile of data. Once you've done your trail camera survey, you have an estimate for the number of deer that were using that bait site and, and hopefully using your property during that time leading up to hunting season. Combine that with your hunter observation survey and you might have a decent idea of whether or not your, your population from you know o over a few years has increased or decreased. You can compare that with what you're seeing in the plant community and general observation and, and, and feel of, of the deer population from spending time out on the property and you have an idea of whether or not that population is increasing or decreasing. And therefore you can make a decision on whether or not you want to adjust your harvest upward or downward. Right. Right. Mariah, I, I've got a question for you. So, you know, you talked a little bit about baiting uh, on the, in the trail camera survey example. Would, if you're unable to bait in, um, on your, on your land, would you recommend having more cameras at, you know, key points and maybe they're, areas where deer tend to congregate heading into a food plot, you know, any strategies there just to get relevant data, any recommendations? So depending on the state, of course, there's some states where you can't bait, but you can feed prior to season. If that's the case, just do your trail camera survey before hunting season, which I should mention the goal of, of these trail camera surveys is to always do them before hunting season anyway, because you want to have a you want to have a preseason snapshot and you don't want it to be biased by hunting activity. If that's not an option for you, you can do passive surveys, passive trail camera surveys. Um, and, and just like what you said, you, they're not set up over a food source. You can you know, either place them randomly across your property or you could place them on heavily used trails. Of course, the difficulty there is that it can be tough to identify unique bucks on a trail when they're moving. So if, if there's something there that can, that, that naturally stops them like fork in the trail or, or maybe it is the edge of a food plot or something that will help you identify those unique bucks that can help your number that can help you out when you're, you're actually crunching the numbers uh, to be a little bit more accurate. So yes, you can use passive surveys. You just may have to alter your design a little bit. And because it's not baited, I would recommend increasing your trail camera count you know, to, to maybe one every 50 acres or something like that. Um, so that you have more trail cameras out than you would have on a, on a baited survey. Okay, great. And when you're looking at the data specifically, um, you're looking at it uh, on a daily basis for a period of time and you're kind of assessing the, the numbers, so to speak, you know, what, what, what do you think in there? I mean, is, 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 is it, are you looking at it through a, a week period, a two week period, what's typically your interval of just looking at the data? Generally a two week period. If you're doing a beta survey, you need to pre-bait for at least a week or two before you even start your survey. So I'd recommend just putting your trail camera there over the bait, having it turned off, or or you can take pictures, but just throw them out. And then you have to ha you need to have a planned, discrete start date and run it for 14 days, and then 
evaluate or, or, you know, then you have all your data and you can run through your numbers afterward. Okay. Um, rule of thumb, just cause I want to throw this out there. Cause people will probably, you know, someone will probably be wondering, well, I did a trail camera survey. Great. What does that tell me? If, if you're fresh to a property and you do your trail camera survey and let, let's just say for sake of argument, it's a large property. Let's say it's like a thousand acres. Therefore you, you have a pretty decent, control on, on the deer population, or, or, or at least you are a large contributing factor to whether or not those animals are taken or not. Obviously on a smaller property, there's these external factors, which are the properties around you and you have to factor in their harvest. In this example, we have a big property and we estimate, oh, there's, let's say a hundred deer on this, on this property. If you're wanting to maintain that population where it's at, you should plan to harvest about 25 maybe 30% of the does that you counted on your trail camera survey. Just general rule of thumb. That's kind of your starting point. So if you're jumping into it and you don't know where to start, you can start there and then reevaluate next year. Good. I like that rule of thumb and people can work off that number. And that's the number I've seen usually statistically in a lot of the harvest numbers that we're seeing, particularly in our state. So that's, that's a good number to work off of. Right. Yeah. So, I, I know we need to wrap up here. So I want to just touch on the second group of population indices that we can use, or rather um, deer quality indices. And this is all the biological data that you should be collecting from deer that you harvest. Now there's a huge qualifier here, especially for small properties. And that is for this biological data to be meaningful, you need to have a decent sample size. So what do I mean by that? We're going to talk here about using yearling body weights. So let's just say yearling does, for instance, because there's a couple of different indices we get from yearling does. I want, if I'm using these measurements to make deer population management decisions, I want to be getting 10, maybe 20 yearlings a year off the property I'm managing. So if you're, if you're working on a hundred acres, it's gonna be really tough to get very much meaningful data from biological uh, data collection. If you're working on you know, closer to a thousand or more, you should be able to get enough deer annually uh, to be able to, to monitor trends in, in deer quality. So first off, you're gonna to need to collect age data from every deer that's harvested. The age part is, is the most important part here because the age is the qualifier for all of our indices. Right. We need to know whether that deer is a one and a half year old instead of a four and a half year old, um, because, of course, body size is going to vary between those two. The aging method that, that is generally used, tooth wear and replacement, is 100 percent accurate at one and a half years old at the yearling age class. Once you get the two and a half and up, there's a lot of air in it and there's no way to know for sure exactly how old that deer is. Um, there's even air in cementum analy. If you send in incisors for cementum analy analysis, um, in, in, in at least in white-tailed deer, there's there's plenty of published papers out there that would suggest the error rate is just as high, sometimes even a lot higher than even tooth wear and replacement. It's not a it's not a end-all be-all. Um, it's just another estimate that can be used. I don't want to knock it. it. It's it's another tool, but it's not 100% accurate. So. The yearling age class is really important because we can know exactly how old it is based on tooth replacement. The next data we need to gather is the weight of every deer. We need to make sure that we're consistent here. Always either measure 
weights as a whole deer or dressed weight, um, one or the other, and just you know set that standard for your property going forward. That's the easiest way to approach it. Next, for every doe, you need to document lactation status. So usually you can just squeeze and see if milk comes out. If not, you can field dressing, um, cut through the udder and, and see if there's milk inside, write down whether it's lact- that doe is lactating or not. Uh, and then finally for bucks, you can take antler measurements. Um, I, would es- I, or I would suggest here making sure that you get basal circumference on one antler and then main beam length on that antler. To make it easy, just always go with the right antler or, or the left antler. Just pick one and get those two measurements. You can throw in others like width, you know, total score and whatnot. But th- that main beam length and basal circumference are really good and a little bit more sensitive indicators of, of, of quality for, for um, habitat quality, I'm sorry, in, in relation to the deer population. So putting this all together, the indices that we will use from our biological data collection we're going to focus on yearling deer. We're going to focus on first yearling body weights. And the reason I say yearlings is, is because that generally this indice um, is most sensitive. Okay. Older age classes take longer um, to change because they're, those deer have been on the landscape longer. So it will take, you know, three years for a three and a half year old body weight to fully change after making some changes to your habitat management. The next one is is yearling lactation rates. And this lactation rate is an indicator of how uh, or what percentage of doe fawns are being bred, um, which is an indicator of habitat quality. Generally, if if over 10% or so of, of yearling does are lactating, meaning they were bred as yearling fawns, that's an indicator of pretty high habitat quality. And so, of course, that's generally a, a decent indicator. If it's if it's well below ten percent, if you're just not getting any yearling does lactating, you know that can be um, one clue that your population is rather high. The next thing we can look at is the age age structure of the doe population. We want to focus on the doe population here and not bucks because, um, of course, the buck age structure is a little bit more biased because generally there's some harvest selectivity there. Um, in general we want to shoot for having about 30% of our doe population's age structure be in the yearling age class, about 30%. And that indicates that there's enough turnover in the population. If this rate is lower, if we have, you know, very few yearling does showing up in our harvest, that is a, a clue that we have a long lived population that's not reproducing very well. Um, and, and a lot of times that's because we have too many deer on the landscape. And then finally, the last metric we can use here are yearling antler measurements that I mentioned earlier. I do want to caution here just because there is, of course, a lot of variation in antler size in between individuals. Um, And so you need to have a real large sample size to tease out the average and and accurate average here. Um, I would suggest that the, the folks focus more on yearling body weights and lactation rates um, before moving on to antler measurements. So that's just a really quick high level view of the hard data that you can collect, biological data, put those clues together. And, and of course, the more the better to assess whether or not that population is increasing or decreasing. That's great. And you summed it up great with just understanding the importance of that. 
the original indices and the biological data, the combination of those start to give you thresholds to work against on an annual basis. And, you know, of course, at the end of the day, taking note of that data, trail camera surveys, observations, gives you a better understanding of what you're working with and, and are you trending upward or downward? And, and, and basically that's, that's where you're, you're, you're kind of focused in on the particulars on dynamics and the example earlier about, you know, a certain number or percentage of yearling animals that that's certainly important for uh, the continuation of that population and trends that you're, you're hoping to achieve on the, on the landscape. Right. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. I, I appreciate it so much. I can't wait to have you on again. I'm sure we'll hit another great topic. Thanks for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. All right. All right, man. We'll talk soon and, uh, you know, to the next time. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.